chapter 13. Uh, you know now we have been coming through the book of Romans, and today we start the uh, second chapter of the great section of Romans that really deals with the practical things in our life. You remember when we started Romans, I told you that Romans has a natural outline. Uh, every book of the Bible does. Uh, but if the, the key to learning the Bible, uh, the books of the Bible anyhow, is to get the natural breakdowns that God has put in. And I always give you those, you know, whether it's Thursday night, and uh, Larry asked a question for his wife the other night, and I gave you the one uh, Thursday night, the breakdown of Proverbs. And uh, I've done it, you know, for all of the books of the Bible. And we did it when we come through uh, Romans here. Uh, I told you that Roman breaks down into four sections. You'll remember that the uh, first section was chapter 1 through chapter 5. And in that section, uh, he deals with the historical side of things. He shows how God dealt with the Gentiles in the Old Testament. Then he turns around and shows you how God dealt with the Jews in the Old Testament. Then the second section, which starts in chapter 6 to chapter 8, we call that the great doctrinal section. This is where Paul begins to lay out for you and for me the difference between what they had in the Old Testament under the law than what we now have under the New Testament, in the New Testament under grace. And he goes through and he lays out in a very, very, very uh, uh, incredible way uh, all the inside teachings of, of New Testament salvation in an incredible way. Then when we get to chapter 9 through chapter 11, we learn that that was the great prophetic section where God then tells you and me <coughs> as the church exactly what <coughs> he wants us to understand about the nation of Israel, how God is not finished with the nation of Israel and all of the aspects that go along with that. And then we come to the great practical section. That's where we're at right now, the great section of chapter 12 through chapter 16. And we now learn uh, the great principles of how to live our life uh, after we get saved. The whole book of Romans is basically, uh, now that we are saved, this is how we ought to view, and then you fill in the blank almost in every chapter. And in chapter 12 through chapter 16, for you and for me, who after we're saved, we have to live on planet Earth and go through the things that we go through, he tells us why. And we saw in chapter 12... We saw how that we are to, we, we, our perspective of dealing with the world, uh, how we view it from God's standpoint. We saw two things in chapter 12 as we entered into great practical section. The first thing was we saw uh, that our bodies need to be a living sacrifice. And we saw how that lays itself out. The second thing we saw was the, uh, the character qualities that God has uh, that we need to build on our own lives. And we walked through them very carefully. Now, when we get into chapter 13, we're going to learn some of the greatest lessons, I think, and we're going to take our time with this today in, in this whole chapter, but some of the greatest principles about the Christian's relationship to his government. The powers that be, those that are in authority over you uh, in our own governmental system, our state system, or may even at work with the people you work with. Now, I want to begin reading here in chapter 13, and we'll come down through the first five verses, but here's what it says, and follow along if you will. Let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God, the powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now, that's not 
damnation like going to hell. That simply means that if you rob a bank, you go to jail. Say, damnation of the flesh. Say, for rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Wilt thou then be, uh, not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. For he is the minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is the minister of God, revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Wherefore, you must deeds be subject not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. Now, Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and uh, we love you. We thank you for those that have come out today. And we pray as we enter into this great chapter, Father, that you'll help us glean all the truth for it, that we'll leave here today uh, stronger for you and a better relationship with you. Uh, we love you, Father, for all that you've done for us and all that you've given us. And we pray now, Father, you'll take this time. These people have come out today, Lord, because they wanted to learn something uh, from you. And I pray, Father, that you'll give us that today and help us and understand all that we do. We'll give you the honor and the praise and the glory. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. We just look forward, Lord, to what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I don't know today, honestly, of another subject that is probably more prevalent today uh, to us than the aspect of how we should deal with government. It seems like that everything, uh, everything hangs on where our country goes in the next couple of years. I mean, all you have to do is look around you and you know that our, our country is completely upside down in just about everything that it tries to do. The picture is certainly not pretty. We've already seen sweeping changes that, that very frankly, uh, if you're not grounded in the Word of God and understand the things that I'm going to talk about this morning, they're, they're, scared of, they're scared of fire out of you. I mean, absolutely. And we all like to play the blame game. Uh, you know what? Uh, the conservatives, they, wanna, they like to blame Obama and the progressives, you know, and the liberals, and you can turn into your TV programs or read the newspapers and you can find everybody trashing them. Then you have the other people on the other side that want to blame the Bush administration for their woes, you know. And I, I'll be honest, unless you have a final authority in your life to be able to sort it all out, it gets very confusing. You know, I, I'm a guy that uh, I don't know a lot about sports and I don't, I don't follow a lot of the teams like some of you guys do. But one of the things that I do when I go to a ball game, whether it be the Royals or the Chiefs or, or whoever, one of the things that I'll do is I'll buy a program. Uh, and I'll buy a program simply because what I want to do is at least know who's playing where. Uh, the program basically shows you where the positions are. And then on top of that, it kind of shows you uh, who's playing where. It gives you a little background on the guy. It tells you his stats and, and how good he's done or how bad he's done. And it basically puts the ball game into perspective for you. Now, take that analogy and look at it like this. This is what the Bible does for you when you're dealing with situations like our government. There's a lot of players in it. There's a lot of people, a lot of circumstances, and a lot of circ uh, uh, things that we have to look at and understand. And the Bible, when dealing with something like this, does for you what a program does for you going to a ball game. And I'm going to give this chapter uh, the attention that it deserves for a couple of reasons. Uh, with what is going on uh, in this country and what you and I are going to have to face the next five or ten years, there's some things that you definitely need to begin to understand if you don't already. 
I look at my job as pastor of this church is to not only uh, train you in the Bible, help you have the best relationship with God uh, that you can, but my job is through the Bible to look long range. And when I see things that are coming our way, my job is to try to prepare you for that, that you have a better understanding so you don't get blindsided when something terrible happens, mentally and, of course, spiritually. And that's the first reason I want to spend the time, because I want, to, I want you to be prepared for what probably is coming our way. The second thing is this. I want my church to be full of what I call world-aware Christians. I want you to understand on a global concept of what's going on in the world. A couple of, I think it was last Thursday night, uh, maybe it was uh, two Thursday nights ago, when somebody asked the question, I gave you one of the greatest verses in the book of Proverbs that really helps you begin to put things into perspective. And it says in 28.5, it says, Evil man understand not judgment, but they that seek the Lord understand all things. And remember I told you that the unsaved world looks at the world, looks at America, looks at the government, and they see it from the worldly standpoint. And many times we get, as Christians, as confused about it as they are. But the Bible says that when somebody seeks the Lord, and we know what that means, that means getting into your Bible, reading your Bible, coming to Thursday night Bible study, coming to Sunday morning, get everything that you can get. When a person seeks the Lord, the Bible says they understand all things, and that's my goal for you. I want you to be world-aware Christians. I want this church to be a world-aware church. I want you to understand what's going on, not only in the world, but in our own country, and be aware of it simply because uh, God says that you and I should be able to understand all things. You've heard me say many, many times, and you're going to hear it a lot here in the next couple of years, and as we continue to build upon it, you've heard me talk about the three P's of ministry. And I, I condense them down so they're easy to understand. You've heard me talk about purpose. You've heard me talk about perspective. <clears throat> and you've heard me talk about passion. Of those three, I think personally for me, the hardest one for me, and it's probably, if you'll be honest today, the hardest one for you would be uh, the aspect of perspective. Somebody said something 40 years ago that I've never forgotten, and it's even truer now than it was 40 years ago. It was the preacher, and I can't remember his name, but he simply said this. America is an insane asylum run by the inmates. And that was 40 years ago. And I'm telling you, the, the, the thing that I face, and I'm certainly you face it, it's really hard living in the filth and the corruption of this world, staying sane, let alone trying to keep your perspective. I mean, we are in the world... <clears throat> And we have to face all of the things that go in it. You know, the little phrase, and it's such a good phrase, but all, I mean, the depth of it, that little phrase, we are in this world, but we are not of this world. Now, that's a great little term, and it's so true. And it sounds so good, and it sounds so simple. But the reality it is, boy, that's, that's hard. It's hard to keep your perspective. We struggle. We live in a world and we have our face right up against all of the filth and the corruption. You see it every day in your workplace. You see it every day wherever you go. You can't drive down the road and look at the billboards and not be impacted by it. You pick up a newspaper, and it's there. You see it in the commercials. You see it in the movies. You see it in everything we are faced with. And uh, it, it's, we rub shoulders with some of the most wicked, ungodly people. 
you'd ever hope to encounter. And it rubs off on us. And those are the kind of things that help us to lose our perspective. You know, when I first got out of high school for about two months before I went into the Army, I went to work in a steel mill. And I worked at a place called Republic Steel. And uh, my dad had worked there for 26 years, and and, uh, I got a job there. And my job was was a, a job of what they called a hand grinder. And what they would do is they would make these big billets of steel They'd run them down on, they'd pour the steel out, they'd run them down on the catwalk, and then they'd pick them up on a crane, big bundles of them, you know, weigh six or seven tons. And there was like nine or ten stations where, at each station was, was two hand grinders. And what they would do is the crane would come up and he'd drop on, the, on these big iron billets uh, a whole load of steel, about 20 feet long. We had big hooks that we could turn them with. And my job was, is for eight to ten hours, is that uh, I first thing I would do is I'd go down that, that bar of steel and I'd look where there were imperfections, cracks in the steel. And I'd mark them with a crayon. And then I'd do that whole bar and my partner, he'd work the other end toward me. And then what we would do is we would take these big hand grinders and we'd grind those cracks out. Then we'd turn the steel bar, mark them again, and in a night's time we'd do probably three or four loads of steel. I'll never forget the first night uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the steel mill that I worked at had probably been there way before the war. And if you've ever been in a steel mill, it is absolutely the filthiest place, dirt-wise, that you're ever going to be in. And I'll never forget, I went to work, you know, and I went out and bought me new work boots, went out and bought me new work clothes, you know, had my steel helmet, safety glasses on, and my big old gloves and out there, you know. And I went in there, and when I left after my shift, I walked into the men's room, and I, all these guys were, were, were taking showers. I mean, you know, and they brought an extra set of clothes with them. And I, I looked at it kind of weird, and I thought to myself, well, you know, I, well, that's dumb. Why would you want to take a shower here when you can go home? And then I looked in the mirror. I was covered with dirt from head to toe. The eight hours or nine hours of working in that filthy, dirty place, of turning in bars of steel, grinding it up with dirt everywhere. I mean, it was, it was, it was absolutely a steel mill is one of the most dirtiest places you could be. I looked in the mirror, and I, I mean, I was black from head to toe. My clothes were covered with it, and I had never really looked at myself in eight hours, and I said, now I understand exactly why these guys take a shower. And years later, you know what I thought? I thought that's exactly the way we are with the world. We rub shoulders with the dirt of this world, just like in nine hours I rub shoulders with the dirt in a steel mill, And many times we really don't see how dirty it gets off on us, you see? And we don't see the dirt. Uh, We still think we're okay. I did until I looked in the mirror. And when you look into the mirror of the Bible, you can see how the dirt of this world, through no fault of your own. I'm not saying you're going out and looking for it. I wasn't wasn't going into the steel mill and it's getting dirt and rubbing all my face because I can look like everybody else. Through the natural course of my eight, nine-hour shift, I just got dirt all over me. And through the natural course of you walking through life on planet Earth, you're going to get dirt all over you. It just is. You're not going to stop it. These are the things that we faced with. And you know what? In the world that we live in, in the country we live in, every aspect of our lives is, is, is affected by it. Your job, your family, your wife, your husband, your kids, your relationship with all of that, your ministry, your church, your health, your well-being, your security, your future, 
I mean, uh, when the all, all the financial stuff turned down, there were people that had retired, that had a good pension. You know what they had to do? They had to go back to work. You know why? Just like that. They lost two, three hundred thousand dollars in the stock market, and when they had a nice, comfortable nest egg, then it was gone. And I'm telling you, that's the world that we live in. All of that is affected for you and for me by the powers that be. And it's you know, there's you know, there, there's nothing that we can really do about it. I mean, you ever want to be feel absolutely helpless? Just be in a situation where people in Washington are making decisions that are going to ruin your life, and you got no say on it. The only thing that keeps you sane, my friend, is getting an absolute in your life. Getting something that tells you why things are the way they are. And it'll better put you into a perspective, and oh, that's a great word, of where you're at and why I'm at. And then, you know, you take that concept and add to it the news media. And they all have their own agenda. You and I are bombarded every day with all of the junk of the nations and the world events that just paint a terrible picture. It's incredible. I mean, how frustrating it is. Three quarters of the world today wants to kill us. They want to kill us so bad that a guy is willing to blow himself up on an airplane just to kill a bunch of us. And if that wasn't enough, he puts the bomb in his shorts. 9-11, they took over a number of planes and and, and committed suicide because they hated us and they wanted to kill us. I mean, wherever you go, you know, I've traveled around the world many, many times in my my years, and I've been just about every place there is to go. And you know what? I think of some of the places that I was, I would never think of going back now. I remember being in the Philippines and just starting out on my own and walking through the jungle to see the sight, so to speak, you know. And but you do that today, and you'll wind up being somebody terrorist, a prisoner held ransom, and it's your throat cut. I mean, uh, it's all changed. We spend billions and billions and billions of dollars on other countries in poverty, and yet you drive downtown and you find people that are homeless in this country living on the street. When we'll feed everybody else in the world, but we won't take our own. And what really bothers me is, is our veterans that, uh, that are homeless. Oh, that just frosts me. I mean, men who have who spilt blood and, and served this country, and they come back. When I hear stories like men who come back uh, that, uh, uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, Iraq, and they get a leg blowed off, or Afghanistan, or they're severely hurt, and they're in the hospital trying to recuperate, and then they got to argue with their own government, Because of the fact the government wants them to prove uh, they were really hurt in in Afghanistan or Iraq. Just stick the bloody stump up in their face and that ought to be proof enough. There was one situation where a young man had been stepped on a landmine, lost both of his legs. He's in the hospital and he's recovering very seriously and scrapping the wounds over. And you know what our government did? They sent him a bill for $1,600 for his helmet, his rifle, his body armor that never got turned back in. Now, that's what happens when you get a bureaucracy running countries. And I, I, get, I get frosted at things like that. I'm just telling you. I'm just telling you. I mean, uh, we, 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 you know what? In this own, your own town, you're basically held captive. There's certain parts of town you drive down in, you got a chance of getting shot. You don't have to go looking for trouble. There's, there's been stories of people just driving down the freeway and somebody fired around in a car or over an overpass or somebody threw a rock down. 
I mean, there's no safe place in the world today. I mean, you say, well, I'll go to work. Yeah, and somebody will be disgruntled and walk in and shoot 15, 20 people. world's in a mess. It's in a mess. Police can't protect you. But then our government wants to take the guns out of your hands so you can't protect yourself. So when somebody breaks into your house, use harsh language. One of the things I used to like about when I used to uh, get the National Rifleman, they used to have a section in there called the Armed Citizen. I love the story. In this is probably remember the story just about a month and a half ago that the woman that was alone out in the country, and somebody pulled up at her house and somebody began to break in her house and she got the sheriff's department nine one one on the phone, and she's trying to tell this woman that somebody is outside her house. She needs to get help. And they're talking with her and talking with her, and, and, and she says, now he's, he's on the back, back, my, back of my deal, and I don't, I'm alone by myself. And she says, I'm, I'm going to go get my shotgun. And the and, and woman says, the, the 911 operator says, are you, are you, you have a gun in the house? She says, oh, I got a big one. I got a shotgun. <laughs> she goes and gets, this was all in a 911. You could hear it. She went and got the shotgun, still was, didn't want to shoot the guy. And, and, and she's telling the 911 person, look, this guy, now he's picking up, a, he's looking in the window, and he, he's picking up a chair, and he's, now he just smashed my window, and he's coming in. I, and she kept saying, I don't want to shoot this guy. I don't want to sh- kill anybody. Finally, there's, and she's way out in the country. You know, the average sheriff is over at the donut shop, and he's got to make his way over there, and she's in a bar by herself. Finally, an officer or a sheriff gets on the phone, and he says, ma'am, he says, if that man is in your house, you have a right to protect yourself and you have the authority to shoot him if he comes in that house. The next thing you heard was a shotgun going off and she killed the guy. <laughs> you know the greatest defense? And, and I'll, now, let me say, I'm not some white right-wing radical. I'm not somebody out here, you know, that uh, I'm not part of the Missouri militia. I, I don't have anything to do with those kind of things. But I just, all I have is common sense. Somebody says, what's the greatest defense with a bad guy with a gun? Seven good guys with guns. Somebody says, well, you know what? You shouldn't have a gun because of the fact that uh, innocent people will get killed. Oh, okay. Yeah, the guy with the bad guy comes in and kills nine or 10 or 15 innocent people, and you're afraid that some good guy with a gun might accidentally kill somebody. That's good thinking. That's good thinking. It's crazy. It's crazy. You don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. But if you're a senator or a congressman and you don't pay yours, you get a free pass. And then you get put in charge of the Eternal Revenue Service. <laughs> God, you got to love it. I mean, you got to love it. I mean, I used to watch Porky Pig and Donald Duck on Saturday morning. I just watch CNN now. Congress wants you and I to have a, a universal health care. And they're working very hard at getting something ready. And they're going to shove it down our throat. But they themselves aren't going to take the same health care. See how it works? The corruption and ungodliness in our own government rivals the famed Roman Empire right before its collapse. 
Uh, we live in a time, ladies and gentlemen, it's much like the, the time of the nation of Israel. Isaiah 5.20 said these days were going to happen when good would be called evil and evil would be called good. There we are. Hosea chapter 8 verse 12 says that the great things that used to be have now become the strange things. Things like patriotism. Things like prayer in school. Honoring God. Having Christmas pageants and Easter pageants in your school. Micaiah chapter 2 verse 11 actually says that the men who have the lying false spirits that change all this good for evil... Well, Bible says that they will be the people's choice. I mean, the Bible's not silent on it. And I'll tell you what, it gets real confusing. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to all that stuff. I'm not saying don't ever read a newspaper again. I'm not ever saying don't listen to a news broadcast. I'm not understanding. I'm just telling you in preparation for Romans chapter 13. I'm preparing you, <coughs> trying to lay the groundwork that in the times that we live in, if you don't have an absolute standard to sort it all out, you're going to be in trouble. I tell people all the time, you know what? You are, and they, they woe and moan about life on planet Earth and all those things. And I tell them, I say, you know what? What are you complaining about? You got a front row seat to the end of the world. It didn't cost you a dime. But we lose our perspective. You see, now let me tell you, and I'm building a case here for when we get into this thing, but somewhere in our thinking, we got sidetracked. And let me tell you how we got sidetracked. And I'm going to show you how the Bible sorts it out for you. Someplace along the line, we think the, De the Democrats and the liberals are of the devil, and the Republicans and the conservatives are of God. Now, that's what it comes down to. I mean, I'm just telling you. And here's what happens. And I know why it happens, but here's what happens. The Democrats and the liberals are so bad... We hate everything they do. I mean, it's the ACLU that it had, you know, and all their deals and banning the prayer in schools and acorn, you know, and all that stuff and the abortion issue of, of killing babies and, and, uh, and all of those things and getting rid of God to the place that every time somebody wants to do something for God, the ACLU stands up and takes them to court over the thing. And, and it, we get so sick of that and we hate that so desperately. That on the other hand, we see the Republicans and the conservatives, and they basically will stand, in most cases, for traditional values. At least you don't see them doing the godless stuff that the liberals do. They stand for some of your values, some of my values, First and Second Amendment rights. They're against abortion, as we are. So we automatically think, because we're just, this is the way we go, see, we automatically think that their way of government must be God's ways, God's way. In our minds, we make the word conservative compatible with the word Christian. Think they're the same. And then you add to the confusion, you have all the great conservative <coughs> uh, preachers today, and all the evangelical preachers today, <coughs> they get into the, into the side of it. I remember Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell's dead now. He went home to be with the Lord <coughs> last year sometime. But who doesn't know about Jerry, Wa Jerry Falwell and his moral majority? Jerry Falwell wanted to change the government by getting uh, to the point where, uh, you know, he, he brought about a political organization that would rival the Democrats or the Republicans, or at least would 
be injected into the Republicans that he would have such a forced base of people that the Republicans would always do Christian things. And it didn't work. But even today, you know, we have Dobson, we have Pat Robertson, we have Rick Warren and all those guys. And they're, they're, I'm not saying they're bad guys. But when you put all that together, you know, you begin to think that the Democrats are bad and of the devil and conservatives and Republicans and are good. And then you have on a global scale. On a global scale, it's really easier to see it. We're capitalists. We under, we're under a capitalism a system and structure. Within that capitalism system, we call it a democracy, see? And, of course, uh, uh, in the world global thing, it is capitalism versus communism. And now it's capitalism versus Mohammedism, see? But we've been, we've been bombarded all down through our lives, you know? In the 1950s and the 1980s, we were afraid of the Cold War. That was with communists, right after World War II. I remember, as clear as I'm standing here, I remember back when I was, oh, what, six or seven years old, the threat of nuclear uh, Russia going to bomb us. You know, and then I got on, we didn't have internet back then, but I, I read somewhere, my dad told me, you know, that Canton, Ohio is where I live. Canton, Ohio was the number two steel capital in the world back in the 50s. Republic Steel, Timpkins Roller Bearing, uh, Bethlehem Steel, they, they, made, they made 90% of the steel for the world. And so my dad comes home and, and, and boastfully talks about how the, the steel company in Canton, Ohio is the number one uh, place in the world. And then proceeds to tell me that on the communist list of ballistic destruction, Canton is number two. Well, that made me feel good. We're on their hit parade as number two. I remember reading in Life magazine that everybody was worried about nuclear. Uh, and you young guys and kids don't remember that. Some of you older ones probably remember it. I remember reading Life magazine, and it told you how to survive a nuclear attack from Russia. Now, keep in mind, I'm just a little kid, but I can read. And it says if you got, you can build a bomb. Everybody was building bomb shelters, stocking them with food. You go downtown now, and you'll see some of those yellow and black signs that are civil defense signs, and they'll talk about the capacity of how many are hold. You know what that's a holdover from? That's a holdover from the 50s and the 60s and the Cold War. That was a bomb shelter. And back then, they stocked them with food and water. See? I read in there, if you had an income of a year, of a, uh, you know, you could build a bomb shelter that, you know, uh, uh, for $100,000, you had a 99% chance of, of getting through a nuclear blast. If your income was, you know, uh, you know, uh, eighty thousand or seventy thousand dollars or sixty thousand, you could build a bomb shelter that gave you eighty-five percent chance. And then it said that if you had an income under twenty thousand dollars, which was ours, the best option was to go to the northeast corner of your basement. <laughs> As a young kid, I spent a lot of time in the northeast corner of my basement. <laughs> I was scared. And then we moved from that into, into, the, into, the, you know, the, uh, into the Muslim era. And now we're all afraid of the terrorists. We had the war in Korea, then the war in Vietnam. Now we got the war in Iraq. Now we got the war in Afghanistan. America's goal has been very, they've been very prophetic and very popular with what their demands are. America wants to be the model nation to bring democracy, what we have, to all the repressive people in the world. So, I mean, that's our goal. So what do we do? So the CIA goes in and engages in co-op operations. When, when uh, uh, you know, there's a repressive government, we go in underneath the thing and topple the government like we did in Vietnam. 
like we did in, uh, in Afghanistan when the Russians were there and we try to bring about these things. You know why Osama bin Laden hates us so much? You say, well, he's a Muslim and he's a terrorist. Well, he is that. But you know why he hates us so much? He has seen what our government has done underneath to undermine his own country through the CIA because America wants to bring democracy to every, to every nation. You see, that's our, that's, our, that's our crusade. We talk about people's civil rights. We talk about people's human rights. And we get the impression from what we hear, what we read, and what we see about our government versus all the other governments that we're the good guys and everybody else is the bad guys. And we actually come away believing that because we hear civil rights, human rights, free the oppressed, we get the impression that God would have all men to be free in a a democratic society or a capitalistic society like America. Yet, ladies and gentlemen, you're going to see before we're finished this morning, that's simply not true. Real freedom doesn't come by, by getting somebody out of an oppressed nation. Real freedom comes by you getting your soul delivered by the death of Christ on Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. You can get somebody out of an oppressed nation all that you want and give them a democracy where they get Elvis Presley's oldies and goodies for $9.95 an 8-track and cassette. <coughs> Give them hot dogs and all the things that go on there, baseball and the bottom line. But at the end of the day, if they die and go to hell, you didn't set anybody free. And that's the first thing we need to understand this morning about approaching government. Real freedom is not you being in a government that is lets you go wherever you want to go without having your, or your papers are not in order. See, that's, that's what we think. You can tell I've locked a lot of movies, haven't you? <clears throat> Hey, that's how I learned my Bible. I don't know about you, but anyway. <clears throat> the only right you and I have, the only right you and I have as a human being, the only right. There's no civil rights with God. There's no human rights with God. There's only freedom in Christ Jesus in his death on the cross. The only right you and I have today is to die and go into hell and scream our lungs out for all of eternity. That's man's right. Somebody says, we want our rights. You go to hell if you got your rights. No, real freedom is never given to anybody by overthrowing some country or another government. Real freedom is getting somebody saved and getting them delivered from the bondage of sin and death and a a direction headed to hell, and then they're free in Christ Jesus to do what God wants them to do. You need to understand that. You need to understand that. You see, it's hard for us because in Revelation chapter 3, verses 14, we find on our chart back there, and we'll go through it on church history, the last church period before Jesus Christ comes back. And we know that to be the Laodicean church period. And Laodicea means rights of the people, see? Now, the Bible's clearly telling us that the last church that is here in church history right before the coming of the Lord, is going to be the church that concerns more about human rights, civil rights, their rights, than God's rights. By the way, you realize that after you, before you're saved, the only right you have is to die and go to hell, and after you get saved, you don't have any rights anyhow, because the Bible says once you get saved, what? Know ye not your bodies, the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. You lose all your rights when you get saved. We don't like that. 
because we have our rights. You know? Yeah, you have your right. You got your right today, you'd be down there with a rich man in Luke chapter 16. Now, the reality of all of this, and reality, my friend, is perception. It's found many places in the Bible. And uh, to me, I think, and we're not going to turn there. You can just listen to it, and I'll, I'll, cause I'll, we're going to move through this pretty quickly. But to me, the best place to start is in the book of Ecclesiastes. Do you know what the book of Ecclesiastes is about? Well, you're going to learn a little bit about it, at least to help you better understand. We don't have time to go through it all this morning. But the book of Ecclesiastes is written by Solomon. And Solomon, he was the wisest man that ever lived. Now, the theme of Ecclesiastes is one little phrase. It's called, under the sun. Under the sun. Somebody says, what does that mean? It means that, in fact, you find that phrase 25 times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It simply means that Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, looks and investigates everything that goes on on planet Earth that man can come up with, hence the term, under the sun, on planet Earth. We live under the sun, see? And what he does is he lists in the book ten vanities that man has. And the whole book is written from a completely different perspective than all the other books in the Bible. This is the only book in the Bible where Solomon, through God's Holy Spirit, dictates for us and shows us what really goes on, what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, under the sun on planet Earth. You know what he does? And I don't have time to lay this out this morning, but he goes through every ology that man comes up with. He goes through pragmatism. He goes through uh, all the different things. He goes through hedonism. He goes through existentialism. He goes through pragmatism. He goes through everything that man comes up with as a philosophy for life and shows you how that it won't work. At the end of the day, it's vanity and it's going to land you in hell. He also goes through all the different governmental suck structures and systems because every government is built on a philosophy. And I'll give you a few of them to show you what I mean. In chapter 4, verse 1, he shows you the evils of what we call fascism. Now, fascism would be Adolf Hitler. Fascism would be Mussolini. Fascism would be Tito in Spain during the, uh, uh, during the early part of the 20th century. And then in 6-2, he goes through socialism. Socialism would also be connected with Marxism, communism. And uh, he shows you how that that is an evil. And then he goes in chapter 9, verse 7, he goes through modernism. Modernism would be uh, a brand of liberalism uh, where, uh, you know, everything, uh, we would call it uh, 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 situation ethics. If it feels good, do it. You know, that's modernism. And then he talks about in chapter 11, verse 9 through 10, he talks about humanism. And humanism is man getting rid of God and man setting up himself as God. Now, you can combine some of these, and we talk about, you hear a lot about the progressive movement today. The progressive movement is a mixture of socialism, modernism, and humanism. When you blend them together, kind of like Neapolitan ice cream, you get, the, you get the concept of progressivism. It has all the blends of it. But in chapter 5, verse 13, and this is what I want to get to, he shows you the evil of capitalism. Our form of government in the book of Ecclesiastes isn't any better than the rest of them. And the reality is that democracy and capitalism, Democrats and Republicans and progressive and independents are no better from God's standpoint than communism, fascism, or the Mohammed crowd. I mean, it's all the same. You see, what you've got to begin to understand that God's form of government is a theocracy. It's not a, it's not a republic. It's not a democracy. It's not capitalism. It's God being on the throne. And right now, what you've got to realize, God 
is allowing the world to be run during this period of time right now. He's allowing it to be run uh, by the devil. The Bible, <clears throat> we're going to see how that is in just a few moments. <clears throat> in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, uh, the devil is called the God of this world. And right now, the devil is running the world through the nations, and he's running those nations through his religions. And there's a time that Christ is going to come back and set up his kingdom, his theocracy. But right now, according to God's plan, God has to have it run the way it is. Now, you're going to see the answers to that here in just a little while. So listen to what I'm saying, but pay attention. Now, if all this is true, and there's no doubt in my mind about it based on the Bible, it is true. Here's what we need to understand, and here's what we're trying to get to. If everything I just told you is true, then what in the world is God doing in Romans chapter 13 telling you and me that we have to obey this unbiblical, vanity, godless system in a place in our country that is run by, now that we know, the God of this world? What in the world is God doing in Romans chapter 13 telling us to obey it, saying that it is ordained of God? and that the people in power are put there by God with all the corruption is going on and the fact that it's really run by the devil. Now, that's the question. And that's really what you, this is what you've got to understand before we get into Romans chapter 13. And all I'm going to do today is I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get your perspective. If you pay attention today, you're going to go out of here. If you just listen halfway, you're going to get some good background uh, that uh, is absolutely vital in putting this thing together. Now, let me begin by saying this. In the Bible, God only ordains three institutions. And this is very important. This is where we begin. Everything up to this point has been introduction. Very good introduction, but it's been introduction. God only ordains three institutions in the Bible. The first one is marriage and the family. And you'll find that in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve, and he ties it into Ephesians 5 for marriage for you and for me. And uh, that's the model for every marriage. The second thing that God ordains is the, is the church. And the church is ordained as an institution in the book of Acts. So you have, so far, two institutions. You have the church and you have marriage. And, of course, if you've been married any length of time, you fully understand that marriage is an institution. <laughs> and the moment you say, I do, you have committed yourself to an institution. <clears throat> now, whether it's a good institution or a bad institution, I cannot tell for you. Okay, now the third one is civil government. Civil government begins in Genesis chapter 10, 11, and 12. And the first Gentile nation is set up in Genesis chapter 10, which forms the first structure of government. And then it works its way all the way through the Bible, but it's realized in the model for you and for me in the nation of Israel in Exodus, uh, book of Exodus to 1 Samuel. And the thing that you've got to realize is that, uh, that all, all government, all government is based on that model, or should be. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, and this will show you that our own country See, our country is a long way from what it was, and so therefore, because you don't have any history of it, or you don't have anybody to break it down for you from the Bible and give you what I'm giving you, then all you have to hang on to is what you hear, and most of that is wrong. Our, our country, when it was formed in the early 1700s, was formed 
on the basis of the structure of God's institution of government, which was the nation of Israel. Did you ever see it? First of all, we were a republic, not a democracy. And we've talked about this many, many times, and I'll not go through it and tell you the difference between a republic and a democracy this morning, but basically you know that a republic is built on the principles of the Word of God, and a democracy is built on the majority rules. Um, the second thing that you find here is our own laws and our own statutes. In the Bible, you're going to find seven legal terms that are found in the Bible. Seven legal terms. Those seven legal terms found in the Bible, they form basically our legal system in the United States of America. In other words, when you go to court or you go into the law practice, you'll find the seven legal terms in our own government setting up the laws and the statutes that you find in the Bible because it's built on that concept. See, you never get this. Our own laws themselves. Uh, you know, we have an issue today uh, in our country about capital punishment. And uh, we have a judicial system that, that deals out with, with uh, the different aspects and crimes that people uh, have get into. But the truth of the matter is, many, many years ago, even in the early 1900s, our legal system was much more simplistic than it is today. It's gotten much complicated as anything big gets more complicated. But our basic laws themselves are founded on the Old Testament. When you want to talk about capital murder, you want to talk about manslaughter, you want to talk about accidental death, you see, our, our own government has different categories for that. <clears throat> you don't get the gas chamber or the electric chair or lethal injection for, for manslaughter. You may go to jail for it, but you won't get executed for it. That's for capital murder, see? And yet, uh, you won't go if you accidentally kill somebody and it was a terrible accident. They're not going to give you the death penalty for it. You may not even go to jail for it if it was just a situation that was an unavoidable accident. You say, who decides all of that? That is based on Numbers chapter 35. Numbers chapter 35 tells you about a man who is a capital murder man, premeditated murder. It tells you about manslaughter. In the Bible, it's called manslayer. And it talks to you about accidentally killing somebody. It even gives you an example. If you're out digging a hole in the, or cutting it down a tree and your axe head comes off and kills the guy next to you. It covers all of those things. Our country, when it put up its judicial system, was based on the model found in the Bible. You find people that, that don't want to go to war because they think the Bible says thou shalt not kill. So if you go to war, you're killing somebody. But when you get into the Bible, you find that God does not call killing somebody in a war being a murderer. He doesn't look at it the same way. And you've got to begin to understand those things. England's the same way. England, in its original concept, was probably closer to God's theocracy than even we were. Their parliament and their governmental structure is based basically on the same things. But they have a monarchy. They have a king or a queen, see? They, they, they're even closer to it than we are. We have a president. They have a king. And they have that based on the fact that they understand what the Bible laid out. Do you ever notice in England when you go to parliament, you go to court, you always know they wear, the even today, they wear the white powdered wigs? Do you know why they wear the white powdered wigs? Because in Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, when it gives a picture of the Lord Jesus coming back at the second coming of Christ, the Bible says his hair is white as wool. So they wear that as a symbol of the fact that their judgment of what they're going to do to remind them that there's one that's going to judge the world righteously so they better deal righteously with their judgment. See, those things are, that's what those things are about. And you could watch CNN a million years and nobody would ever tell you that. See? And these are things you have to learn. 
And, and we're in Romans chapter 13. And we're going to talk about government and the child of God. So you need to first understand that the model we have early on, even though it's gone to pieces today, was the model of the nation of Israel, God's third institute that he set up. Now let me explain something to you. And I guess if there's anything that you're going to get confused on, if, if, if I'm not careful, it'll be what I'm about to say. So I want you to listen very clearly. I, I want you to hear what I'm saying. Because I know that people are going to get, you know, go out here and say, I hate that. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. But here's the bottom line, and here's what you need to know. Oh, look at you all just waiting for me to give it to you. Here it comes. Blueberry muffins need to have at least 20 blueberries in every one. Ah. That lady over in the light, her pen just went right off the thing. Here's what I'm going to say. There is no such thing. Now listen to me. But you're going to get this out of whack, and you're going to go out of here with your nose bed on a joint, and, uh, you know, we don't want that to happen. Though some of you were born that way, it's very obvious from where I'm standing, but that's okay. Listen to me. There is no such thing as a Christian nation. That's like saying there are Christian businesses. I remember years ago that Amway, and I'm, I'm all for Amway. I, I, I'm not, if you sell Amway, God bless you. Uh, you know, I am the way, the life, and the truth. I know what Jesus said, Amway. You see, I'm with it. See? <laughs> now that I think of it, maybe it is a Christian business. Now that I would put it that way. I've heard all my life, and maybe you have too, that Amway is a Christian business. And, you know, and the truth of the matter is, there are no Christian businesses. Now, let me clarify that. There may be Christians who run a business, see? But that does not make the business a Christian business. A country may be founded on biblical principles, and it may try to adhere to those biblical principles, but that does not mean that they are a Christian nation. It means they are a nation that follow, to the best of their ability, Christian principles. You've got to be very careful with that, very, very careful with that. And that, 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 you know, the only thing that God ever set apart as Christian was the church. He didn't ordain Christian governments. Now, in the Old Testament, he had the nation of Israel that was a holy nation, but that's the difference between dealing with the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, God had a holy, visible nation, the nation of Israel. But they weren't Christian because there were no Christians then. But they were holy and they were a nation. And God, through that nation, reached the world. But we know that today, God has no Christian nation. He deals with it through you and me, the church. You see? That's how he deals with it. And it's, it's, it's just that simple. And you have to understand that. And if you're a Baptist here this morning, or I should say a Bible-believing Christian, you should be against, at least conceptually, and understanding the way I'm laying it out, the idea of America being a Christian nation. And the reason why of that is this. It's too close to the number one problem that America, when she began to build herself as a nation, tried to stay away from. And that is the concept of the separation of church and state. You don't want America to be a Christian nation any more than you want America to be a Catholic nation or a Lutheran nation or a Presbyterian nation 
or Episcopalian nation. You, you, don't, you don't want it in any of those. You really don't, if you understand your Bible. Now, I think the concept of separation of church and state is probably one of the mis, most misunderstood concepts in all of, 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 of America. It has absolutely nothing to do with you having prayer in school. Separation of church and state means absolutely nothing to a bunch of a coach praying with his team before they play basketball or football. The separation of church and state has nothing to do with after school hours if you want to have a Christian club and meet in a, in a school gymnasium and have a Bible study. It has absolutely nothing to do with at Christmas time a church or some public thing putting out a nativity display. It has absolutely nothing to do with the Ten Commandments being displayed in your courthouse. It has nothing, nothing to do with Christmas pageants and Easter programs in your school. It has absolutely nothing to do with somebody going around saying, Merry Christmas, and somebody else saying, Happy Holidays. <laughs> when I was in school, it was Christmas break. Now you know what it is? Winter break. When I was in school, it was Easter break. You know what it is now? Spring break. See? Now, let me tell you why you don't want the concept of a Christian nation. You, at least you want to define it in your mind so you understand what, how this thing fits in. Let me talk to you about separation of church and state for a moment. You've got to have this. Now, where did it start? Well, it started in the early part of the 1800s. In 1801, there was a group called the Danbury Baptists. They were from Danbury, Connecticut. And they had heard a rumor that America, which was just in its infant stage now, was going to put in a church-state religion. Now, you know what a church-state religion is, don't you? It means that a country decides on one religion, and that religion becomes the state religion for the country. If you go to Spain, uh, you don't grow up choosing being Catholic. You were born in Spain as a Catholic. You know why? Because Spain adopts the church-state religion of Catholicism as the national religion. So when you're born in Spain, you're born Catholic. In Germany, it's Lutheran. And when you're born into a church in, in, in Germany, uh, even to this day, and, and it's fragmented much because nobody believes in religion anymore, but for hundreds and hundreds of years, when you were born in Germany, you were born a Lutheran. And you didn't have a say in it. That was the state church. Now, this is why your founding fathers came from Europe to America, because they were trying to escape the one religion of, of any country, because they learned some things. They realized that in country where, it's true today, if you're in Spain and you're not a Roman Catholic, you know what you have to do if you go to be a missionary? You have to register with the state. When I say the state, I'm not saying like Missouri. I'm talking about the whole concept of the government. You have to register as a cult or a sect in that country because you are not recognized as a religion. You know what they do? Then they put five times the taxes on you and not on the state religion. They persecute you as much as they can. Many times uh, when the communism was, was, was rapid, in, rape, uh, rapid in, uh, in, in, in Eastern Europe, in Hungary and, and places like that, in Czechoslovakia, uh, which Czechoslovakia is no longer here, but, but uh, uh, in Romania, uh, if you were a Bible-believing Baptist church, you had to, the church-state religion was a religion that set up by the communists that they told you everything you could say and preach and do. 
And if you did not want to register with them, then you had to register as a cult and operate under severe penalties. That's what they didn't want. That's my point. You got to understand what God is doing and what's going on. The Danbury Baptists were concerned about that. They knew too well that every church state religion that was set up wound up persecuting all the other religions. They wrote to who then was president, Thomas Jefferson, and they laid out their concerns. He wrote them back on January 1st, 1802, and he told them not to worry. Now, here comes the definition of church and state from our own government. You never hear this today, but you're hearing it from me. He said not to worry that the First Amendment had had put a wall between church and state. Now, that's all you ever hear. They take it completely out of context. <clears throat> he wasn't saying that what he's talking about is one religion, whether it be, whether it be the Catholics or the Lutherans or Baptists, taking over the, the country. And the reason why you don't want America being a Christian nation is because that's not by God's design. We do want America built and filled with people who love God and biblical principles, but that does not make it a Christian nation at the end of the day. It's still run by the God of this world. See, you've got to understand that. So he says to them this. He said, not to worry. The First Amendment had put a wall between uh, the church and state. And that's all you ever hear. But then he went on and he said this. The First Amendment keeps the state from running the church, but does not keep Christian principles from running the government. Now, that's what he said. And that's exactly what we want. We don't want a Christian nation. We want a nation that is built on Christian principles because the only thing that God ever ordained to be the pinnacle of putting out Christianity is not a nation. It's the church, you and me. And that's exactly the way we want it to be. That's exactly what it needs to be. See how it works? God will use all governments, good or bad, Because God has a plan, and he sets the governments up, and he uses them, and then he tears them down. Perspective is absolutely vital, absolute, getting the final authority. And this is why in everything that we do, from Thursday night to Sunday morning to our one-on-one to whatever, Bible Institute, church history, whatever we do, I'm always showing you the biblical bottom line of what God is trying to do. I think so many of you got your eyes open when we went through our Bible basics class of how the whole Bible fits into the whole perspective of what God is doing. American Christians never understand these aspects of God and nations, and so they get caught up with the Internet, what they read, Fox News, NBC, ABC, CBS, 60 Minutes, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, Bill O'Reilly, Sean Hannity, Time, Newsweek, you know, National Standard, and they totally lose God's viewpoint. And I'm not saying you shouldn't listen to those guys, and I'm not saying you shouldn't read those things. I do. But I already have my perspective, and I know nothing's going to change that. Right now, the Gentile nations are under the control of the God of this world. The Christian church is set up by Christ and God in this dispensation to carry out God's work within this satanic structure of any nation. And of course, the great thing that shows you that is you ladies that 
went through the seven things that changed about you the day you got saved. <clears throat> I preached a series a number of years ago. It's on the website. <clears throat> and I showed you the two different things, that the seven things that changed about you <clears throat> the day that you got saved. <clears throat> and two of those things deal with directly where we're at. The first one was the Bible says we are seated in heavenly places. And the second one says that once we're saved, we're ambassadors for Christ. You know what that means? That means when God, this is the answer to understanding the little phrase, I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. God saved you. He could have taken you out and taken you to heaven just like that and let this whole thing just fold up. But God had a plan. That plan was the church, not the government, the church. So God puts you in a church. God saved you for a purpose. God served you for a plan in your life. And what he wants you to do is fulfill that through the church. So what he does, he gives you a Bible that gives you the perspective. He gives you a pastor that should give you the perspective. <clears throat> and you begin to process, but you begin to get in your mind that now that you're saved, you're not really here. You're up there. Set your affections on what? Things above. See? You're seated with him. You're up there. Now, the problem is you're up there in God's mind, but you're down here in your flesh, and we're rubbing up against all that dirty stuff. See? But in your perception, you're up here. And then the other perception is, I may be here, but I'm an ambassador. You know what an ambassador is? We have ambassadors to every country in Washington, D.C. You know what their job is? Their job is to represent their government in a foreign government. You know what your job is? You're now citizenships of heaven. Your citizenship is now in heaven. You're seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Your job and my job is to come back to this godless, worthless piece of junk called America with its system and be God's ambassador. My do today, you know what I'm doing in this world? This world, I'm, not, I'm in this world, but I'm not of it. I'm, I'm seated up there, but I'm sent back as an ambassador to this, to this nation. Yeah, I was born in America. I was born in Ohio. I've lived here all my life in this country. I've served in the military. I've done all the things everybody else does. But the day I got saved, I quit, I quit being seated here, and I'm seated up there. Now my job has changed. Now I'm a citizen of a foreign country, God's country. And now my job is to be an ambassador back to this world. My job is to tell everybody on this planet about a better place to live and a better government. See how it works? It's not hard, just nobody ever explains it to you. There's a term in the Bible you need to understand, and I'm quite aware that most of you understand this, but, but just be patient with me. And it's found in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. And it's simply the term, times of the Gentiles. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me try to explain it to you. We know that in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament up to uh, old in your Bible up to Second Chronicles chapter 36. You can start at the beginning of your Bible in Genesis and go all the way up in right order to Second Chronicles chapter 36, and you would find that, and that's a story in the Old Testament that covers God's establishment of the nation of Israel. And we know how that thing goes. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right down the line. In 1st, 2nd Samuel, they become a nation. Uh, uh, you know, God got about an exodus, brings them in. They gives them a king, David. And, you know, they, they reign for, uh, you know, four or 500 years. And then what happened? They go, they go to pot. Baal comes in, Baal worship comes in, all the other gods come in, and they go belly up. In 606 B.C., in your Bible, that will be 2 Chronicles chapter 36, in your Bible. I'm just trying to help you out here. In your Bible and history, that'll be 606 B.C. God was fed up with the nation of Israel. So from 606 B.C. 
all the way up through history. We're now, well, living 2010. Okay, from 606 B.C., that's when the times of the Gentiles start. The times of the Gentiles start when God is finished with the nation of Israel temporarily, Romans chapter 9, 10, 11, and then turns his attention to the Gentile world and nations. And that period runs from 606 B.C., right up now in the time that we're living and runs right up to Christ comes back at the second coming of Christ. We are living in and have been living in since 606 B.C., times of the Gentiles. Why does he call it times of the Gentiles? Because it's the time on planet earth when the world is run by Gentile nations. And we know who runs those Gentile nations now, don't we? The God of this world. See how it works? That's exactly what you've got to understand and you've got to deal with. At a time that the Gentiles is a period of time when God turns world domination from, from God and Israel to the devil and the Gentile nations. And this is exactly what you've got to begin to understand. Now, this brings us up to the book of Daniel. And the book of Daniel is an incredible book. Everybody likes Daniel because it talks about prophecy. You know, Daniel's 70th week ties into the book of Revelation. And it all does. But let me tell you one of the things that Daniel does for you that most people never see. Daniel... Daniel is a book that's written by the man Daniel in your Bible who goes into captivity in 606 B.C. under Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, okay? You know what Daniel does? Yeah, he writes the great prophetic book about the second coming of Christ, but I'll tell you what he also does. Daniel lists the Gentile nations in the order that they appear from 606 B.C. right up to the time that we're living right now. And what you get when you understand that is you begin to see and understand the concept of the times of the Gentiles and how it fits into Romans chapter 13 of us being in America and it helps figure out why all of this stuff is going on around us today. Let me bring you through it very quickly. In Daniel chapter 2, he starts with Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That'll be 606 B.C. The next king that comes on the scene in 536 will be Darius, who's king of Persia. The next king that comes on will be in 330 B.C., and that'll be Alexander the Great, and that'll be the Greeks. Oh, I'll tell you what. Now, last night, if you were just sitting around bebopping and wasn't paying any attention, there was a movie on called Troy. How many saw it? Don't you like when he kills that big giant at the beginning? I missed that part last night, but I wanted to see it. <laughs> now, you watch something like that, and it's entertaining. You see a guy by the name of Achilles, who was a great famous in history. And most people don't know how much Achilles impacted the world. You know, if you got a, you got, you, he got, at the end he got shot in the, in the heel back here, and to this day they call it the Achilles tendon. Okay? You notice how he treated that woman last night and was really snobby to her and killed her brother or her uncle or whatever and wouldn't hear anything to her, and he was really a mean person to her? That's why women say, how was your date last night? Oh, he was a real heel. <laughs> Laugh if you want. You probably think Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. I'm telling you. Because he was a heel. See, he's, Achilles is remembered by the heel. But that's where he got shot. And he was a heel in everything that he did. But that's Alexander the Great. Greek takes over and defeats Persia. That's what it was all about last night, if you watched that movie. Then in, in, in Greek, in 100 B.C., Greece gets defeated by, by Rome. And then Rome stands into power from 100 B.C. up to about 1500 A.D. And then we switch to Daniel chapter 7, and we pick up the last three nations that puts it all in perspective. You know what? Uh, in the Reformation in 1500, England, uh, England takes over from Rome, and England becomes the world power for the next 400 years. 
In 1900, she changes power. We have the Bolshevik Revolution, and Russia becomes the world power in 1917, and she rules the world up to about what? 1980, when the wall collapsed, and, 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 and communism lost every nation just about that she had in Central Europe, and they were suddenly free. Then you know who takes it over in Daniel chapter 7? Yeah, the good old USA, America, from 1980 up to right now, the time period we're living in. And you know, you know, when you study that thing, you know who comes in right after the USA and the last world power? Yeah, you guessed it, the Antichrist. See how that thing works? Everything in history, every nation, every king, every president, every, every, everything will work toward one end, and that end is Christ coming back. Now, our problem is, is that old saying that we, we've heard about many, many times, and some of you young kids don't use it anymore, but us older folks. Remember the old saying, you can't see the forest for the trees? Well, this is our problem in America. We can't see what's going around because we're too close to it. You know one of the great concepts I love in the Bible? It's, it's the concept of a high tower. Uh, David has a high tower. At a high tower set on the wall back in the Old Testament, when you set on the wall, you could look out and get a 360 perspective of what's going on around you. Uh, ground level, you couldn't see only one perspective. But when you get up high on a tower, you got a 360 perspective of what's going on around you. And of course, that's what the Bible does for you. The Bible elevates you to the place that you have a high tower, you and God. And what God shows you from that high tower is a 360 perspective of what's going on in the world around you. You get up above the trees, see? Because down here, we're too close to the trees. You got to get up. I remember one time years ago when I was just a teenager, I had an uncle. His name was Uncle Ernest. And... Uh, Uncle Ernest, Ernest was, a, was a forest warden or a game warden or something. I don't think what he did. But his wife, uh, his wife uh, was one of those forest service people back in Maryland. They had these beautiful forests, and she was up in a tower. And her job was to look for, for, look for uh, forest fires. And her whole job all day was stand up there and look through binoculars and see smoke and call it in, you know, all those things. And one day, uh, you know, we were driving through the thing. They were going to take me up there. And I, I was just a young kid. And I come through there and I thought, man, the trees were all in there. But when he got up the little gravel road to the tower and we walked up that ladder, oh, it was scary. You know, it was like back then it was a thousand feet, probably 50 feet off the ground. But, you know, and I go up to the top of that thing and she got up there and I could see the hay. And it was just like the whole thing changed. I could look now a panoramic view in 360 degrees and see nothing but the tops of trees. And anything that went on, you could see from up there. Big old powerful binoculars, man. You could watch, and I thought to myself years later, I thought, you know what, that's what the Bible does for you. Because driving up the road of life, sometimes you just see the trees around you. But when you get up to that tower, and that tower is based on learning the principles and getting your perception of the Bible. What I'm trying to give you today, it elevates you to the point that you begin to see things that you can't see when you're just down here. And that's our problem. That's our problem. Now, I want to give you two verses here that are going to really help you put this all together. The first one's Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1. And it says this, and you got to get this. This is the piece of the puzzle you need to have. It says, the king's heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. And as the river of waters, he turneth it wherever so he will. You know what that says? It says no matter what government, what king, what prince, one president, whatever, the heart of that man is in God's hand. And God uses nations to accomplish his plan, whether they're good or whether they're bad. You've got to see that. Then the second thing I want you to see is found in Psalm chapter 9, verse 17. And it says this, The wicked shall be turned into hell and, and, the and all the nations that forget God. You see, God judges nations 
And most people don't know this. God judges nations just like he judges individuals. God has a plan and he uses nations and countries and kings and presidents and queens to accomplish that plan, good or bad. And then when he's done with them, he sends the nations on the ash heap of history and if the people didn't do what was right, they wind up and go to hell. Watch how this thing works. Genesis chapter 12, God used Pharaoh to get Abraham back on track. Pharaoh was an unsaved, pagan man who had no concept of God or cared anything about Abraham, but God used him. In Genesis chapter 20, God used Abimelech to get Abraham back on track. At the end of Genesis, in the early part of Exodus, what did he do? He uses Pharaoh and Egypt to build his people, the nation of Israel, into a fighting strong nation. How did he do it? How did he do it? He made slaves out of them for 430 years. Woo! Violated their human rights and their civil rights. For 430 years, he stuck them down in Egypt, the most godless, perverted place on this planet. And for 430 years, he said to Pharaoh, make them strong for me. And they come out in Exodus chapter 12, 430 years later, and they're God's people. Then you know what God did? He come down and clobbered Egypt, buries them in the litter box of the Middle East, <clears throat> and you can't even find them today. When you study Egyptian history, you study it in three phases, early, middle, and late dynasties. You go to an Egyptologist today or somebody that's an archaeologist today in Egypt, he couldn't tell you anything about the beginning of those kingdoms in the early and even sometimes in the middle. They don't know who built the pyramids. They don't know who built the Sphinx. They don't know who built any of that stuff. You know why? Because God used them for his purpose to make his nation a strong nation and then flushed them. Okay? Why? Because God uses nations. You've got to learn this. How about the book of Judges? In the book of Judges, he used nations. In fact, in Judges chapter 3, verse 1, he says he left these nations for one reason. These godless, perverted, they hated God. They hated everything about God. And they hated the nation of Israel. God says, I, he tells you, I left them here for one reason. They're going to prove the nation of Israel. You know who they are. They're some of the most godless nations in the Old Testament, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the Hittites, the Klingons. Oh, not the Star Trek, I'm sorry. <laughs> Sometimes I get my stuff a little screwy here. The Amorites, the Philistines, the Hivites. They started high V, by the way, right after they all got beat up. The Moabites. They're all against God. You know what God does? God uses every one of those nations in the book of Judges to prove Israel. And you know what he does? He wipes them out and never says, thank you. Kills them. You can't even find them today. Get out a map. Go to the Middle East. Show me the Hittites. Show me the Canaanites. Show me the Jebusites. They're gone. He sets up Israel, 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st, 2nd Kings. He gives them the greatest nation on the face of this planet, and you know what happens. They fail, fall flat on their face. 500 years later, they're into Baal worship. He gets fed up with them. He temporarily takes them out of Jerusalem, sends them into captivity. He gets on the big red phone that God's got up there, and he calls two kings, one in the south, Nebuchadnezzar, and one up north, king of Syria, Shennacherib. And he says, look, guys, I got a job for you. My people who I put down there and did everything for, have just turned their back on me. Now, I need to whip them. And so what I want you to do, 
Nebuchadnezzar, I want you to go in and take the two southern tribes and Shenachrib, I want you to get down and clobber the ten northern tribes and take them into captivity. Whip them good for me. Kill about half of them. Take the rest of them into captivity and get them down there and whip them because I'm their God. I told them this was going to happen. They said, no big deal. And they turned their back on me. Go get them. Boy, did he go get them. When Shenachrib came down from the north, he butchered them. When, when, when Nebuchadnezzar came in from the south, he butchered them. And he took them into captivity and temporarily, because of their turning their back on God, the nation of Israel ceased to exist and the kingdom of heaven temporarily is gone. Then you know what he did? He called Darius king of Persia and said, now I got a job for you. Go kick the fire out of Babylon and, 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 and uh, Syria. And Persia did. With Darius in 536. Then you know what he says to a wicked king. Now, Darius was not a Christian guy. He was a pagan king, just like the other guys. So you know what that did then? He called Darius on the phone and he says, you know what? They've been in captivity long enough. Go down there and whip Babylon and go down there and kick the fire out of Assyria. And he did. And then he says, you got control of the world now? You're the name of domination Gentile nation because we're in the time of the nation. Now, here's what I want you to do. Send some of them back to Jerusalem. Yes, sir. Oh, and by the way, there's going to be some people down there that don't want them back, so send an army down to protect them. Yes, sir. So the same God who used the nations to whip them and destroy them was the same God that took the next nation, whipped those nations, and then sent his people back. And again, never said, thank you. No, you know what he did? When he was done with Persia, he threw them on the ash heap of history. I'm telling you, listen, the nations of this government of this world are established by God for his work, for his purpose, and his pleasure. Never mind CBS, NBC, and Fox News. Don't get caught up with the Republicans and the Democrats and the communists and the capitalists and all that. God uses those nations to fulfill his plan. The Bible told you in Romans chapter 9, verse 17, that as far as nations concerned, God had vessels of honor and he had vessels of dishonor. You get to choose which way you want to go. God will look at a nation and he says, you follow my principles and I'll take you and use you and I'll bless you. You want to go your way and tell me to take a walk? Go ahead. I'll still use you and then I'll use you and then I'll throw you in the ash heap and I'll judge you and send you to hell at the end of the great white throne judgment. What did he say to Pharaoh? Romans chapter 9 verse 17. Pharaoh, the wicked Egyptian king. Watch what he said. And he said unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, that my name may be, uh, my name may be declared through all the earth. You know what he did? He brought Pharaoh up, made him make Israel a great people, and then he, he comes down and he clobbers them and he says, you know what? Hey, hey, Pharaoh had every chance that you and I have. How many times did Moses go to him and say, let my people go? He says, I ain't letting your people go. They're my people. Moses said, God wants them to be his people. I don't care about your God. I'm your old Brenner, man. I've been making movies. <laughs> so what happened? God finally got his people out, didn't he? And then Pharaoh comes after him, doesn't he? Like, oh, God doesn't have a plan. What do we do now? 
I mean, they're standing on the other side of the Red Sea. God had just split the Red Sea. And they're standing over there, and they see Pharaoh's armies coming after them. They're saying, oh, God, they lose faith, just like we do. You know why? They kept losing their perspective. Forget the fact that God just got them out of a slavery for 430 years through miraculous stuff. And here you are over here now on the other side. He just split the Red Sea, and I'm worried about an army coming after me. But oh, they were. God says, Moses, just, just hang on. Just, God says, Moses, just, just hang on. Just, we, you got to get them let in the middle there. Just let them get down in the middle. When they got down in the middle of that big old thing, man, they just said, hey, hey, boys, put the water back. They all drowned See? Now, you know what your liberals tell you, don't you? They'll, they'll try to take everything away from you. They'll say, well, they, they really didn't drown in the Red Sea. Well, that's just a fable. So when you go to most churches or you go to seminary or you talk to most people, They'll say, it wasn't the Sea of Red Sea, it was the Sea of Reeds. They just left a little E out. It was no real miracle. Well, I think that's quite a miracle. They said the Sea of Reeds only had about four inches of water in it. I think that's quite a miracle. Paul Pharaoh's army drowned it in four inches of water. I like that better than the other one. I think that's pretty good. Either way you go, you can't get around God. He uses nations. He uses nations. Before you can grasp why Romans chapter 13 says what it says about don't fear your government, they're there for you, for your good, when nothing about them is good, you have to get God's perspective on it to understand it. God uses nations. He just uses nations. America, my friend, you want the real truth? You want the real truth? I mean, I sound like Jack Nicholson up here. You want the truth? You can't handle the truth, you see? But I'll give you the truth. That was in Few Good Men, by the way, if you never saw that movie. America's the final phase of God's plan, folks. Come on. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, then it's the Antichrist. We're the last great Gentile world power. God will use her for his pleasure, for his purpose, and while, uh, and, and while the governments of the world and the government of America scramble to fix all their problems, just like ants on an anthill, you know, uh, and they never figured it out. You know, when I was a kid, the greatest gift I ever got, they don't have these anymore. Of course, this is our government put restrictions on it. They all got to have visas. I had an ant farm. How many know what an ant farm is? Yeah, you used to buy them. You'd get a little, it was a little box about that big, and it had dirt in it, and then you got a bag of ants, add water, they come back alive, and you put them in there, and they had a big glass front, and you could actually watch the ants making little tunnels, laying little eggs, doing all the little ant things. And, you know, it was a great little tool as a kid. And I had that for about four or five years. And then those ants, they built this and they grew, you know, and I'd catch ants in the backyard and put them in, you know, to keep them re-going because ants die, you know, they get old too. And, you know, uh, and I, they had a little thing down here. I think that was the ants' old folks' home. But they had a whole little society built down there. And I got that when I was probably nine. And then four or five years later, I found out better than ants, were the thing called girls. <laughs> and the ant farm, I lost interest in. You know what I did one day? After my mom just nailing me for months, you know what I did? I walked into that bedroom where I had my ant farm. <clears throat> I walked over to the table, picked up that ant farm, and put that thing over there, went to the trash, just threw that thing in the trash. Now, those ants didn't appreciate that. <laughs> they had built their world as they knew it in that ant farm. 
The only problem was they never realized that somebody else had bought and paid for the ant farm and it really belonged to me. They just thought it was theirs. And one of these days, ladies and gentlemen, the one who built this ant farm, whose ant farm it really is, is going to come back and throw the whole thing in the trash. And what you think about it and I think about it makes as much sense as those ants thought about it when I found out there was girls in the world. He built the ant farm. It's his. Because we scurry around here like ants making all these decisions and doing all these things doesn't change the fact that it's his world, his ant farm, and when he comes back and says it's over, it's over. It's over. Then he'll throw her on the trash pile of history with all the other nations that have forgotten God. Look how it goes. God used America to give freedom to the early Bible believers in 1600, didn't he? God used her to get you the right Bible in 1600 to 1800. God used America to get you the right church in 1600 to 1800. God used this country to get the book to the world in 1700 to 18 to 1900. God used this country to get the Jew back in the land in 1948. God used this country to protect her, uh, her, her national policy uh, by giving her F-15s and A-bombs and, 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 and arms and ammo and money and all those things. Then he'll turn around and use this country after she dumps the book to bring in the Antichrist, which is happening right now, and set this whole thing up because God uses nations. Now, you see, you got to have perspective. I'm in this world, but I'm not of this world. I'm an ambassador. I love my country. I have no real feelings to more my country. I really don't. I understand what this country is. And uh, right now, Romans chapter 13 has to be viewed in the light of this right perspective. Nothing that this country does will stop the work of God or you doing it as long as you keep your perspective. You see, people forget the greatest nation that God has used in the 20th century uh, to work in the 20th century to do His work with a nation that had their freedoms taken away from them. Not America. Red China, Korea, Romania, Hungary, Cuba, Russia. You know that the absolute revival going on down through those countries while you and I enjoyed our freedom wanting to free the oppressed of those repressive nations. Don't you know that Christianity always flourishes best when it's persecuted for what they believe? Here is God put the whole structure up to get thousands of hundreds of millions of people saved and he knows that persecution is the way to do it and our country trying to undo the persecution that God put them in so we can really free them. Got to get your perspective. Got to get your perspective got to get your perspective. And I'm telling you, this is why you and I need to come to the place <clears throat> that when we get into Romans chapter 13 and we start looking at the government, we need to understand it in its perspective of what it is. Now, you've got all the tools now, <clears throat> all the tools that you need to put it in the right concept, the right perspective to do something with it in your own personal life. And as we enter Romans chapter 13, now we have the tools to understand it the right way. And everything you needed, you got today. And if you're somebody that's trying to put your Bible together and learn all the concepts of things, you've got a valuable lesson this morning. Maybe the rest of you it won't make any difference, but if you're trying to put it all together, you've got what you needed today. All right, we're going to pray here in a moment and be dismissed. Now, let me just say this to you before we go. What was I supposed to remember? You don't remember. Oh, boy, I'm really in a word hurt now. Bottom line is this. Don't forget to sign up for helping with the meals back here. Don't forget to sign up for the soccer or the uh, hockey game if you're going. Make sure you're going to go. And uh, don't forget Church History Tuesday night and next uh, Saturday morning, ladies. 
I want, I'm, I'm inviting and asking if you're a woman in this church and you want to get yourself to the place, you don't have to be a member. If you're somebody who just says, I want to get God going in my life on wherever you're at, be here 930 next Saturday morning and we'll change your life. I guarantee you. Let's pray. Father.